And Father, for ourselves, as we now prepare ourselves to come to your word, we ask, O Lord, that you would use your word to do your work in us. Strengthen our faith. Lessen our confidence in ourselves. Grow our confidence in Christ, our great high priest, who intercedes at your right hand for us. O Father, we ask that you would use this time to glorify Christ, to turn our hearts more fully unto Him, to strengthen our resolve to live for Him, all for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel, which is kind of toward the beginning of the Bible. It's a few books in. We're going to be continuing our study of 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 6 today. Uh, We're actually going to get through the whole chapter, going all the way to chapter 7, verse 2. I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to write a whole sermon, uh, just one sermon, based on this chapter, because I think what you'll see as we go through this chapter today is that there are probably five sermons in here, but uh, I'm trying to get through First Samuel in about a year to a year and a couple months maybe, uh, so we're going to be covering all of chapter 6. I'll be as uh, succinct as I can be with, uh, with our passage today. So we'll be looking at chapter 6, uh, verse 1, till chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, as we continue our study of 1 Samuel today. When the Apostle Paul spoke on Mars Hill to the people of Athens, the philosophers, the thinkers, the smart people of his time in Acts chapter 17, the way that he opened his sermon was very interesting. That's one of the most famous sermons. But his, his opening line, the first thing he says to them is very interesting. It's this. This is what he says. He says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. That's what he says in verse 22. Now, some people might say, well, you know, he's just being cordial. You know, he's just trying to, you know, maybe establish some some common ground in order that he might establish a foundation and, and, you know, move on from there. So he's just trying to kind of get their attention. And, And maybe to an extent, maybe that's the case. But we're reminded of something that's very important in that opening line. Uh, Because I don't think he's just being cordial. I think he's also being truthful. And that is that even those who neither know nor rightly fear the one true living God can be very, very religious. Even people who don't know or fear God can be deeply, deeply religious. Paul wasn't lying to them. He was just being honest with them. And while while Paul was, yes, speaking specifically to those people, to the the men, the philosophers, the people who were in Athens, uh, the fact is that what he said can actually be said of people everywhere, in all places and at all times. Even when a person rejects the God who reveals himself both in nature and more fully, obviously, in Scripture, they are still, whether they realize it or not, they are still a very, very religious person. That is just the way that we are wired. In fact, I would say that religion, religious convictions, often, ironically, 
prevent people from coming to God. This past week, I listened to a well-known podcaster who is an agnostic skeptic of Christianity, and he interviewed a pretty well-known Christian apologist who is also a scientist and a philosopher. And it was clear that the host of, uh, of this, this podcast, this interview, was openly uh, hostile, r- religiously hostile, to the claims that the, the Christian scientist and, and philosopher was making. The host was religious in the sense that he had these, uh, these dogmas, these dogmatic assumptions that he would not let go of. He, he was religious in the sense that he was dogmatically committed to skepticism, regardless of how convincing the truth being presented to him was. But the host's religion... And make no mistake about it, his agnosticism was a religion, is a religion. His religion clearly prevented him from coming to the truth. In fact, in 2009, the United States Supreme Court ruled that atheism gets religious protection. Uh, They ruled that atheism was protected by the same clause in the First Amendment that protects uh, every other religious organization in the United States. The clause which prohibits the government both from uh, showing favor to one religion over another or from establishing a religion. So in other words, the government has to treat atheism no differently than they treat any other religion. Isn't that ironic? Because by, by definition... Atheism is even religion, as recognized by the Supreme Court. Even though many in our day claim to have grown past the need for religion, their dogmatic adherence to ideologies or their dogmatic adherence to philosophies, science, whatever, are by definition extremely religious. Now as we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel we've seen that the enemy of Israel, the Philistines, were also extremely religious people. Uh, They feared when the Ark of the Covenant came out onto the battlefield. Why? Because they had heard the stories of what had happened with the Israelites when, uh, when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. Uh, so when the, the Ark came out onto the battlefield, they were afraid uh, because they're religious. They, they believed that there was something to these stories. But they ended up not being uh, dissuaded from engaging in battle. Instead, they rally in battle, and they defeat the Israelites soundly, and they captured the ark, and they brought it back to their territory, their cities. Now, of course, we saw in chapter 5 that this did not go very well for them, that once they took the ark into their possession, it just created a whole bunch of problems. Uh, Yahweh knocked over their God, and when they didn't, uh, they didn't understand the message loud and clear, uh, God cut off the head and the hands of their false god. And, and, and then tumors and, and pestilence and plagues started spreading through the land. Uh, So it didn't go well for the Philistines when they captured the Ark of the Covenant. But nevertheless, the Philistines didn't lose their religion. They they didn't see the supremacy of Yahweh. 
Instead, they just realized they, they didn't want to provoke Yahweh. So not wishing to provoke the God of the ark any further, the people of Ashdod, which was a Philistine city, sent the ark of Yahweh to a city called Gath. And when the same thing started happening in Gath, the ark got passed on to a city called Ekron, where, again, the same thing happened. And then the people come together and they say, hey, we've we got to send this back to where it goes. And that's kind of how chapter 5 left off. But chapter 5 showed us that the Philistines were a deeply, deeply religious people. They, they were committed to certain dogmas, but they didn't know what to do with a holy God. And so we'll see in chapter 6 that they start to ask some questions, some good questions about what to do with the ark. But what we know is that it's not the ark that they really have the problem with. It's the God of the ark that they have the problem with. That is, they had offended. They had sinned against the God of the ark, Yahweh. As the Philistines would try to figure out what to do to alleviate the the plagues and the pestilence that are ravaging their people, We'll see in this chapter, they start asking some very basic religious questions. Again, these are good questions. And that's what we'll see as we cover chapter 6. But the point of the passage that we come to today is this. It's that God's Word reveals how God is to be approached and worshipped. Let me say that one more time. This is very important. God's Word reveals how God is to be approached and worshipped. We must not lean on our own understanding in these matters. God is the one, the only one, who has the right to determine the terms and conditions by which we may approach Him and worship Him. And we must therefore look to His Holy Word for guidance when it comes to approaching Him and worshiping Him. After all, you don't think that we would, uh, would have any better ideas than the Philistines on our own, do you? What the Philistines didn't have was God's Word. But you wouldn't think that we can just worship God the way that pagans worship their gods, would you? Of course not. So what is going to make it difference? Make, make a difference? The thing that's going to make a difference is we have His Word. And we are instructed by His Word in how to approach Him and how to worship Him. But this introduces us to a very important doctrine that governs our worship Uh, It's called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. The regular principle of worship is the principle that our worship is governed by, is, is shaped by God's instructions in God's Word. In other words, God tells us what we are to do when we worship Him. Uh, this is opposed to the alternative, which is called the normative, uh, normative principle of worship, which is essentially the principle that whatever isn't explicitly forbidden or prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship. Uh, man, there are all kinds of things that Scripture isn't specific about. Uh, but for the time being, you can put those two ideas, these two concepts uh, on the back burner uh, as we see the Philistines grapple with the first fundamental religious question that they ask. And it's maybe one of the most important questions an unbeliever can ask. Their first question that we're going to see here is essentially this. It's, how do we escape the wrath of God? 
Because what was made obvious in chapter 5 is that God's wrath is a very real thing. So they're going to start out by asking, how do we escape the wrath of God? Let's look at verses 1 to 6. It says, Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likeness of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods and your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? How do we escape the wrath of a holy God? Of a God who takes sin very seriously. Well, for seven months, Israel had lost possession of the Ark of Yahweh. And this is something that was unprecedented. It hadn't happened before in Israel's history. Phineas' widow, at the end of chapter 4, we saw that she declared that the glory of God had departed from Israel when the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. And here we learn that it was gone, the the glory of God, in in a tangible sense anyway, was gone for seven months Seven months of deadly plagues, deadly pestilences among the Philistines. Seven months of passing the ark from one city to the next. Seven months of God's heavy hand tormenting the Philistines as the ark remained in their possession. Surely the Philistines didn't just want to give the ark up. Right? They, they didn't want to just get rid of it. That's why they, they're, they're just passing it from one city to the next, hoping something eventually alleviates all these problems that are going uh, along with having the ark. But they don't want to give the ark up, and that's why it gets passed along from one hand to the next. I mean, this was essentially a trophy of war for them, right? At least uh, in their minds, that's what it was. It was kind of a, a trophy of war, a, a reminder of how they had soundly defeated the Israelites out on the battlefield. At least it was something to commemorate their victory for a while until it became apparent that possessing the ark was creating all kinds of problems for them. And so at that point, once, once these problems became really evident and widespread, it was a burden that the Philistines were actually just eager to be freed from. But How? How can they be freed from these problems that were coming along with possessing the ark? What, what must they do to get rid of these terrible things that are happening? Because passing it from one city to the next and to the next wasn't really fixing or alleviating anything. 
In fact, it seems that it's entirely possible that their afflictions were only becoming increasingly worse. And so the Philistines eventually reached the point where all they could do was go to their own priests and their own diviners, basically uh, sorcerers, uh, if you will, and they, they asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They want to get rid of it, just like natural man wants to be rid of God's wrath, freed from God's wrath. But how? But how? So let's notice that the reason that that verse is even there is because man in his natural state, in his fallen state, in his inherently sinful state, has absolutely no idea what to do with a holy God. The fallen man's wisest, most educated guesses are all for naught. They still lead him down dead-end roads. They lead him nowhere. And so the Philistines do what people still do to this very day. They consult those that they think might have some kind of spiritual or or mystical insight into uh, divine realities or something. You know, in our day and age, uh, that could look anything like, you know, from, from going to see a palm reader uh, to going to see a, a fortune teller. How do you think those places stay in business? It's because people actually go to them. Uh, maybe it looks today like taking hallucinogenic narcotics to, to, to access some kind of higher reality. It, it can even include something as ordinary as going to see a psychiatrist who can help you get rid of the nagging sense of anxiety that the thought of God's wrath against your sin gives you. I mean, it can, it can look like looking up and, and consulting with your astrology chart in, uh, in the newspaper or even on Facebook. Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, it might have included something as ridiculous as calling up the Psychic Friends Network uh, and spending a fortune having some stranger give you advice. I mean, how do you think they, exp- uh, they, they afforded all those lengthy, uh, expensive commercials? Uh, it's because people were actually calling, it was a 900 number, uh, where the game for them was to keep you on the phone as long as possible. That's how all 900 numbers worked back in the day. But people actually did it. Why? Because they want to know some kind of spiritual insight, because they don't know anything about who the real God is. So the Philistines bring their dilemma to their own pagan priests and diviners, their dilemma being that they knew they needed to get the ark of the, Israel, of, of the God of Israel back into the hands it belonged in, but they wanted to know how to do that without offending the God of the ark. And so they seem to know this much. They seem to know that it would be a really bad idea to just smash the Ark of the Covenant to pieces or to just you know, go out and bury it someplace and forget about it uh, up in the hills. So, so they hope that these pagan priests and diviners would be able to give them some answers. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to escape the wrath of this God? And the response of the priests and diviners is interesting to say the least. They say, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him 
a guilt offering, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So clearly these priests and diviners themselves really had no idea what to do with it either. Notice that their answer begins with the word if. So so they weren't even certain that sending the ark of the covenant back to Israel was necessarily the right move. So they just give advice for what to do if this is what the people decide to do, if this is the course of action they decide to take. But one thing they were not very confused about, and let me be clear, that this is something that every non-believer on the face of the earth is acutely aware of, although it's not necessarily often at a conscious level, and that is that they had greatly offended a holy and living and righteous God. They had greatly offended this God. That's a great place to start, just knowing that much. Knowing that much means a whole lot. You're going in the right direction when you are willing to take at least that much, admit that much, that your sin has somehow, that something that you have done has offended the one true, living, righteous, holy God. It's a good place to start. So how how do we know that they're aware of this? How do we know that these priests and diviners are aware of this? That's why they, they advise sending the Ark of the Covenant back with a guilt offering uh, rather than just sending it back empty. Uh, but even though they're very aware of the fact that they had offended this God who was a holy and righteous God, they really have no idea what to do about it either. The priests and diviners really don't. The, their wisest and their most religious men have no idea who this God is And so, of course, they have no idea how to appease the wrath of a holy and righteous God. And that's true of everyone who isn't saved, isn't it? What is the gospel to those who are perishing? It's foolishness. It is utter foolishness. They would say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, that somebody needs to die for me. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to the unregenerate. Nevertheless, while their, their counsel, their, their, their advice here is kind of bizarre, there are at least three things that their advice gets right about God and His holiness. The first thing that they get right, the first principle, is that our sin produces guilt in God's eyes. Our sin produces guilt in God's eyes. It renders us guilty. Now, what is sin? That's an important question too. We need to know what the, what the lines are, what the definition is, so that, so that we can avoid it, right? This is where it starts. What is sin? We might say, you know, it's, it's anything that's contrary to God's holy and just nature. Uh, it's contrary to what says is good or right or just. Uh, according to the Baptist Catechism, sin is defined as, quote, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So, it isn't necessarily just acting on sinful impulses. Having those sinful impulses itself is sin. Now, let's revisit what the Philistines did. When they captured the Ark of God, where did they put it? They put it in the house of Dagon, their, their false god. 
What's the first commandment again? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And as we saw in our previous lesson, that means that no other gods, no idols are even to be in his presence. Not only were the Philistines therefore idolatrous, but they broke the first commandment about as literally as anyone possibly could, putting the Ark of the Covenant in their minds, putting the God of Israel right next to, right before their own God. So they sinned by worshiping idols instead of worshiping the one true God, and thereby they they provoked God's wrath. That brings us to the second principle. The second thing that they get right here is uh, they're essentially acknowledging the fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 18. The Philistines are dying, literally dying, as these plagues and pestilences spread across their land. And the scriptures teach that the wage of sin is death. Romans 6.23 What that means when we say that the wage of, of sin is death, what that means is that death is what we deserve for our sin in the same way that a wage is what the worker deserves for their labor. It's what justice requires. The Philistines had sinned against God, and thus when he poured out his wrath on them and people started dying due to these plagues and pestilences, it was perfectly just because the wage of sin is death. This is a concept, think about it, that that by and large has been, generally speaking, rejected by so many in the modern church. We want to pretend that the wage of sin is, is not death. That, that God's willing to just give somebody a wink and a smile and say, go on your way. I, I just want you to be happy. And this is maybe why the modern church doesn't like to speak of sin as sin. When so many in the modern church even speak about sin, if they speak about sin, they tend to kind of euphemize it, trying to soften it, referring to it as brokenness, or referring to it as a mistake. The modern church rarely warns anyone about the reality of hell or of the eternal consequences of sinning against a holy God. Instead, we have this view of God that He's he's all-loving, and even many professing Christians can't make any sense of how a loving God could send anyone to hell. It's amazing how much pushback you'll get if you post something about that on Twitter or any other social media platform. People who claim to be Christians will actually give you pushback. It's amazing how much pushback there is on this issue in the modern church. It's no wonder the culture no longer pays attention to the church anymore. If you understand the absolute holiness of God, you will also understand the justice and the righteousness of God's wrath against sin. If you understand the holiness of God, you understand that wrath is actually the only right response that a holy and righteous God could possibly have. 
But I believe that James Montgomery Boyce was right on the money when he said that, quote, the wrath of God is not ignoble. Rather, it is too noble, too just, too perfect. It is this that bothers us, end quote. Yeah, these things are troubling when you really understand them, but why would we let our neighbors die in that kind of trouble? No, this is something that we, as the modern church, we must wrap our minds around and we must speak of because eternity does hang in the balance. So what is one to do about the fact that we're uncomfortable with this? Or to speak it anyway. What are we to do to escape the wrath of a holy God? How can one escape the wrath of God when it's not only what sin provokes, it's what sin requires? That's the question that the unbeliever must answer. It's the question that the Philistines needed to discover an answer for, that they're trying to discover an answer for. And it's the question that even unregenerate sinners in our own day must answer If sin renders us guilty, and if sin guilt provokes God's holy and just wrath against us, how can we escape? How can we shield ourselves from God's wrath? How can we turn God's wrath away? And that brings us to a a third principle that they get right here. And that is that God's justice, His wrath, requires a sacrifice that God Himself deems acceptable and sufficient in order to satisfy His justice. Look at what the priests say in verse 3. They say, "You You shall surely return to Him a guilt offering. To who? To God. To Him, God, a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. So the idea is we need to make some type of payment, some type of propitiation, and then we'll be healed. They're absolutely correct. They're 100% right in this. If they're going to be healed, if the pestilences and the plagues are going to stop, they need to present an appropriate guilt offering. If they could satisfy God's wrath, the plagues, the pestilences, and the death, it'll all be over with. And so the Philistines ask the same question that every unbeliever should ask when they're confronted with the reality of God's wrath against their sin, they ask, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to Him? Good question. Good question. I'm glad you asked because that is one question with which the whole Bible is concerned. The answer of the priests and the diviners, however, is just weird. It's totally bizarre. They're completely at a loss, is what we discover here. They have no idea, so they're just pulling things out of thin air. They don't know. The answer that they should have given is, hey, to be honest with you, we have no idea. Maybe you should go and talk to one of their priests and ask them, how do we deal with this holy God? That would have been a good start. But instead, they say, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. By the way, notice that they said, your gods. So Dagon isn't the only God that, they, that Jehovah went after, that Yahweh went after. Now to give credit where credit's due, 
I mean, we should at least see that the, these pagan priests and diviners at least recognize that the guilt offering shouldn't be cheap, right? Uh, but that it should be of considerable value. They, they don't say, you know, uh, chisel some, some tumors and mice out of, out, of, out of, you know, wood or out of stone or something and bring those to them. No, they, they, they recognize that it shouldn't be cheap, so they say gold. However, biblically speaking, it was still a terrible idea to make golden mice. Uh, Leviticus 11.29 says, Now these are, t- uh, are to you the unclean among the swarming things which swarm on the earth, the mole, the mouse, and the great lizard in its kind. So, so the mouse was an unclean animal in God's sight. They had no idea, though. Again, we, we recognize that. But if they had known what would Uh, appease God, they certainly wouldn't have said a golden mouse. Likewise, presenting golden tumors to God. Husbands, let me get this clear. Your wife doesn't want something like that. It's not going to impress her. What makes you think it's going to impress God? And whose tumor are they going to mold it after anyway? It's just, it's weird. I'd say it's comically tasteless. But keep in mind, they don't know God. They don't know him at all. How do you appease the wrath of a God you don't know against a sin, the debt of which you can't even begin to possibly, uh, to possibly measure? What we are reminded of here is that the unregenerate man really has no idea how to appease a holy God. And saving truth will not be found by going to these pagan sources. Pagan priests, pagan diviners, pagan philosophers, pagan wise men. Because none of them know God. None of them have the slightest idea how to appease His wrath. Saving truth can only be found in God's revealed Word. In Scripture alone. Or from those who speak the truth that is found in Scripture alone. So again, what the Philistines should have done is they should have sent someone to go and consult with somebody like, how about Samuel? Somebody who was faithful to the Lord. Samuel would have known what God requires. A ram without blemish out of the flock is what God commands in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15. Now, Isaiah was still hundreds of years to come. He wasn't around yet, but he would have taken it one step further, undoubtedly, to show that even those animal sacrifices weren't sufficient. They ultimately uh, were just foreshadowing the coming Messiah who would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It's from Isaiah chapter 53. John the Baptist, of course, even further down the line, would be the one to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Speaking of none other than Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 29. And Paul would write this succinct summary of all of this theology so wonderfully clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, where he said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
being justified, that is, declared innocent, that's what it means to be justified, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. In other words, the way to deal with God's wrath, the way to escape God's wrath is to believe on Jesus Christ who was offered, who offered Himself as a propitiation for sin once and for all. The fact is, as, as nice as it is that they make these mice and tumors out of gold and as worthy as the gold that's used uh, might be, it couldn't be enough. It could never be enough. Because the debt of even one sin is greater than all of the gold in the universe could possibly ever even come close to atoning for. God Himself must be the one to provide the sacrificial atonement that He requires. That's a biblical concept that we see from Genesis through to Revelation. God must provide what God requires. Only God can provide what God requires. That's why Peter says that uh, we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. And one final thing that these pagan priests and diviners kind of got right, and that is that there is an urgency to appeasing, satisfying God's wrath. That's why they say, why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Why do they say that? Because they see that their hearts are hardening, that they don't want to do what they've just counseled them to do. And this is valid even today. Sinners who put off, who delay doing what God requires to atone for sins only results in the hardening of hearts. It doesn't get easier. It won't be easier sometime down the road. Anytime the gospel is rejected, anytime people delay, all it does is harden the human heart. But God has provided a means of reconciliation with man through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. The only alternative is God's wrath. What's clear here is that the priests and the diviners recognized that there was some hesitancy on, on behalf of the Philistines. Don't let the same be said of you. Don't let the same be said of you if you haven't believed in Jesus. So the Philistine priests and, and the diviners come up with a test. They see the hesitancy, so they come up with a test to determine whether the plagues really are a result of God's wrath against them. Let's continue in verses 7 to 12. See why I said there are like five sermons in here? 7 to 12. Now therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. 
Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you returned to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch, if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so. And took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of the tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, it seems that the reason for the new cart and the new cows, which had not previously been yoked, they'd never been yoked to a cart before, was to show, uh, partially to show respect to Israel's God. Uh, But they add another factor. Uh, The cows are to have recently given birth to calves, and so then they're supposed to be removed from their calves. Their calves are supposed to bring back with them uh, so, so having never been yoked before, these cows would have been stubborn. They would have been unlikely to cooperate. And having been separated from their calves, the idea is that they wouldn't want to go anywhere. They'd just want to follow their calves uh, back to their homes. They wouldn't want to go anywhere without their calves because they have that strong nursing instinct. But what they're trying to do here ultimately is to determine whether or not All of this is really even necessary to begin with. So if the cows go where they're supposed to go, okay, it was necessary. If they don't go where they're supposed to go, well, then it wasn't necessary. But what we see them doing here is essentially playing a game of Russian roulette with God. Do you see how they're doing that? They're trying to create a scenario that is so unlikely, so improbable of actually happening that the only reason that it would happen, the the only uh, power of of a real living God could make this happen. So this would be like someone in our day and age saying, You know, I I don't believe in God. I don't believe that His wrath is real. But if He wants me to believe that, He'll give me nothing but green lights between here and work. And to make it even a little bit more interesting, I'm going to start with my gas on E and see if He really gets me to work, to see if He really wants me to believe. And let me say this. If you want to play that kind of game with God, maybe He'll give you nothing but red lights all the way since unbelief is clearly what your heart really desires. Why would anyone play games with God like this? The answer, I believe the only answer, is because they don't really want to do what he demands. That's that's all I've got for that. But what we see is that God is, despite their foolishness, he's gracious to the Philistines here. Sure enough, verse 12 tells us, The cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh, They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. 
when you read that thing about turning to the right or to the left, that should ring some bells for you. It tells us that perhaps this was more of a judgment against Israel than it was God's favor for the Philistines, or maybe it was both. But you'll remember that God instructed the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 5, uh, verses 32 and 33, So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you. But what happened? The Israelites did turn aside to the right and to the left, unlike these cows. But what a foolish game to play when it comes to discerning God's will. Richard Phillips offers this piece of advice in his commentary. He says, quote, God's accommodation of the Philistines' procedure should not encourage us to rely on superstitious approaches to discerning God's will. Subjective signs crafted out of the folly of our minds are no way to discern God's will. Instead, they invite us to divinize our own hunches and sometimes provide an opportunity for Satan to deceive us, end quote. So what are we to do if we want to know God's will? We're to live the way that the psalmist lived when he wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. The Philistines seem to be pretty happy to be done with the Ark of the Covenant. Who can blame them? Uh, Really, they're not done with the Ark. For now, they're done with the God of the Ark. The, The words that Job spoke about wicked men are fitting for the Philistines. He had said, Job had said in Job 21.14, they say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. It's exactly what the Philistines were thinking. And so now as this story comes to a conclusion, we see how God's people respond to being in the presence of a holy God. Let's continue with verse uh, 13, and we'll go to chapter 7, verse 2. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines, sorry, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it in which were the articles of gold and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. He struck down some of the men of the Beth, of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, of all the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with such a great slaughter. 
The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar and his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Just as the beginning of chapter 4, if you remember, fit better with the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 7 here is really the conclusion of chapter 6 and fits better with chapter 6. We're told that after seven months of the ark being in the hands of the Philistines, three things happened when it was returned to the people of Beth Shemesh in Israel. Uh, First of all, the people rejoiced to see the ark of the Lord returned to them. Now, it's entirely possible, I'd say it's, it's probable, it's very likely, that they still didn't have a right understanding of exactly what the ark symbolized, but they were right. It was good for them to rejoice as they see the return of the ark and to see that as a blessing from God's hand. Uh, But Paul's instruction to the Philippians seems appropriate here. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Secondly, the people decide to split the wood of the cart uh, that the ark had been carried over on. Uh, By God's sovereign providence, this city uh, that the ark arrived at happened to be a Levite city, which explains the third thing that happened. They used the wood of of the cart and the cows to make a sacrifice unto God. Uh, But honestly, if you understand what they should have done, if you understand what uh, sacrifices were supposed to entail, you'd know that things already are not looking very good for the Israelites. Because the Levites, of all the people of Israel, the Levites especially should have known that God had specifically commanded that only bulls be offered to Him in sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. Further, putting the ark of of Yahweh on a stone out in the middle of a field for all to see was a disastrous mistake. Being out in plain sight, we learn in verse 19 that God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. That's more people than they lost to the Philistines in both of their previous wars combined. Our translation says that the people looked into the ark, the ESV, uh, maybe it renders it uh, better. It says, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Uh, So maybe they looked into the ark, maybe they looked upon the ark, We, we can't be entirely sure. Whatever the case may be, the ark shouldn't have been out there on a rock in the middle of the field for all people to gaze upon. Uh, they, were, they were back in a place, the people were back in a place where they weren't treating the ark of the Lord with reverence and obedience. Just like that. They're missing it for seven months. As soon as it comes back, they're mistreating it again. 
but God was also gracious to the Israelites here because not everyone died. Even though Numbers 4.20 clearly instructs that the penalty for anyone, even looking at the ark of Yahweh, was death. These Levites should have known. They should have known that their first responsibility would have been to get the ark of God out of public view. Where did they get the idea to put it out on a stone in the middle of a field? Where did that idea come from? It came from their own minds. It was their own idea. It wasn't what God had instructed, that is certain. And so this is a reminder to us, a very clear reminder to us, of a very important principle when it comes to worshiping God. And that is that our worship must be shaped and governed by God's instructions, which are found in God's Word. In other words, God is the one who has the right to tell us what we are to do when we worship Him. Nadab and Abihu, if you remember, they offered strange fire to the Lord. They're a reminder that God doesn't really appreciate creative worship. He appreciates, He loves, He welcomes obedient worship. Now, God was gracious with the Philistines who didn't know any better, but the Israelites had God's Word. They should have known what God had instructed, and so their punishment is just. And thus, this incident at Beth Shemesh reminds us that what might seem right to us based on our own understanding, based on our own ideas, our own wisdom can still be very, very offensive to God. If the church, if the modern church is going to send the message that it is important to do things the way that God has instructed, how can we possibly not put that into practice first and foremost on Sunday mornings? The people of Beth Shemesh were as ignorant of God's word and God's ways as the Philistines were. And thus they cry out, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they ended up looking for a place to send the ark, just like the Philistines had in the previous chapter. And so it goes to a town called Kiriath-Jerim. Now less faithful men might have said, Don't pass that thing to me. I know what that thing does. I've heard the stories of what that thing does. It causes destruction everywhere it goes. I'm not going to touch it. Don't send it here. Find somebody else. But these men, for whatever reason, agree to take it. Maybe it's because they had faith in God and reverence for God. But what's interesting is that they're not even Israelites. So once again, the ark leaves the possession of the Israelites. Kiriath-Jerim was a Gibeonite city. But by God's grace, and by the way, that's the only reason that anyone lived. Same reason we live now is because of God's grace. By God's grace and only by God's grace, these people in Kiriath-Jerim have the honor of housing the holy ark of God for the next 20 years. Half of a generation until David would be the one to bring it back into Jerusalem. So the answer to their question, and they ask a good question, the answer to their question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer is nobody. Nobody. One of the themes that connects the two halves of this chapter is the foolishness and the failure of the priests. 
Even they couldn't stand before this holy God. Because that's the issue. He's not just some God. He is a holy God. He is holy. The pagan priests had no idea how to appease him, how to satisfy his wrath. And the Levite priests have no idea how to handle him either. Why not? Because God is holy and we're not. And because we've fallen, we tend to lean on our own understanding, which is what both types of priests here are doing. They're leaning on their own understanding. But friends, we're no different. You and I have failed God too. we failed God in every way imaginable. How are we going to stand before this holy God? If nobody can stand before this holy God, what are we to do? We're to look to the priest who didn't fail. We have failed, but there is one priest who did not fail. The Lord Jesus Christ is our perfect, unblemished priest, prophet, and king. He upheld all of God's commands, all the demands of the law. He never for one nanosecond failed. He's the priest we must look to and consult if we are to know how to deal with a holy God. Hear him call to you to quit trusting in yourself, to quit trusting in your works, to quit trusting in your own understanding, to quit trusting in your self-righteousness. As he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's the way to eternal life. Hear him promise, that, uh, hear him promise to you that he who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 39. This chapter serves as a vivid reminder that it's God's Word that reveals how God is to be approached and worshipped. We must not lean on our own understanding in these matters. The Scriptures alone are our guide in all things, including what we do as we gather to worship on Sunday mornings, because there is no life to be found in our own ideas relating to how God should be approached and worshipped. There is only death in our best ideas. Apart from God's Word, apart from God revealing Himself in His Word, even the wisest, even the most educated, even the most religious among us would have no idea how to deal with a holy, living, righteous God. But we're reminded here also that God expects obedience. And yet we're reminded of the multitude of ways that we've failed. But our priest hasn't. Our high priest hasn't. And he has made atonement for our sins. And so our confidence can't be on how we act. Our confidence must be in what he did. The veil of the temple was torn in two as he was crucified on Calvary to show us that by faith in him, by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, we may now draw near to God. We may now approach him without the fear of being stricken down. God's wrath, God's justice against sin has been satisfied and his love has been demonstrated in the death and resurrection of our prophet, priest, and king. And so all who believe in Jesus can now live without fear, can now approach God without fear of being put to death. Oh, friends, don't you see that these truths 
are more worth living for than anything else in the world. Perfect righteousness is what God requires for us to stand before His holiness. And the good news is that all who savingly believe, all who savingly trust in the Lord Jesus are cleansed of sin by the blood of Jesus who never sinned or faltered. He bore our sin and imputed His own perfect righteousness to us so that when God looks at us, He sees Christ's perfection. Do you believe that? Are you willing to to stand on that? Is grace, is God's grace, as found in Jesus Christ, your only hope? Do you believe that that's the only way that you can be reconciled to God? If your answer is yes, and I pray that it is, then you can rest assured that you, that you, can stand in His holy presence only because by God's grace, the grace in which you stand, by God's grace you stand there, not in your own righteousness, but in Christ's own perfect righteousness. That is the only way to stand before this holy God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. We confess to You that as we read a chapter like this, that all we can see is the foolishness of human ideas. And yet, unregenerate man would be so bold to say that the Gospel is foolishness. We thank You, God, that in Your wisdom, You created a way, You made a way, to reconcile us to Yourself. You provided, as You must, what You require in the Lord Jesus. And so we ask, Lord, that You would turn the eyes of our hearts not to ourselves. Oh, Lord, forbid that we trust in ourselves, that we trust in any works or any self-righteousness that we may think we have. But teach us, O Lord, to look to Christ, to see that He has done what was required to satisfy your wrath. He alone has made atonement for our sins. He alone has reconciled us to you. And it's only in him that we may approach you and worship you in spirit and in truth. So we thank you for your grace in making a way, in loving us enough that you didn't just leave us as we were, in our lost condition. But by your grace alone, you drew us to Christ and you filled our hearts with faith in him that we may look to him, that we may believe on him, and that we may stand on the grace that's found in him. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that it's his righteousness in which we stand. Oh God, we confess that there is no other way that we could stand before you. So we thank you for your grace and we pray that our lives will become a testimony of your grace as you conform us more and more into the likeness of our great high prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus. For his glory and in his name we pray. Amen.